you haven't already, take your Bible and please turn to uh, Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're looking at verses 39 through 52, obviously. And uh, as you know, we've been working our way through the gospel of Luke uh, the past few months. I was just going to actually look at some glimpses of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, but it's uh, too hard. There are too many things, uh, good things. And so uh, we're actually walking our way through the entire book verse by verse. And uh, the past couple months, we've been just looking at the introduction, uh, chapters 1 and 2. I thought we could take Luke in, in sections, actually. So uh, next week, we're going to take a little break from the Gospel of Luke and talk about the church for a couple of months, and specifically uh, church culture or gospel culture. We want to have a, a gospel-shaped culture as a church, and so we want to think a little bit about what a gospel-shaped culture looks like. Uh, that will be our series, and then we'll come back to Luke and look at the next section. But uh, we've been looking at the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, and we've been thinking about the way that Luke introduces uh, Jesus to us, and uh, then how he helps us understand some of the uh, questions and objections that people might have had to Jesus. Uh, obviously, the Gospels were all written for a reason, and one of the reasons that the Gospel of Luke was written uh, was to answer some of the questions and objections that people had about Jesus. So uh, we hear questions and objections now when we witness to someone else. And they heard uh, questions and objections back then when they went out witnessing as well. Luke and Paul, and Paul's a pretty famous writer of the New Testament, they were friends. And uh, Paul tells us when he shared the gospel, there was power God did amazing things through the proclamation of the gospel. And yet at the same time, uh, there were also a lot of other people who thought Paul and Luke were, were crazy. And one reason they would have thought Paul and Luke were, were, were crazy because, was because they were proclaiming a, such a big salvation. In other words, uh, they were making claims. They were, the gospel is making claims. They were, they were saying Jesus came to do something, not just teach something. If they were uh, presenting Jesus as another good teacher, sharing uh, some ideas about how to live life or something, that you debate. But you, you didn't debate this. You said this was crazy because they were saying Jesus did something and that what he did was connected to all these Old Testament promises. And that's a really important part of the gospel message, actually. We're going to see that in the gospel of Luke. This is all according to scripture. This is all according to scripture. And that would have been something, that would have sounded like something that was really hard to believe if you looked at what the Old Testament promised was going to happen. Because if you look at what happened, it didn't really look at like what they were expecting from the Old Testament at all. That was the problem. And Luke's actually helpful as he helps us understand some of the objections and questions people would have had because he reminds us of what the Old Testament promised in this introduction by having Zechariah and Mary summarize what they were expecting Jesus to do in chapter 1. And if you look at chapter 1 and what they were expecting, and then you look at the end of this gospel, it definitely didn't look like it happened. What they were expecting, remember Zechariah, was uh, salvation from their enemies. Mary, a reversal politically, socially, economically for, for Israel. What happened 
Jesus crucified. And, and what makes that even more confusing is the fact that it looks like it didn't happen because the people who they thought knew the Old Testament promises best rejected Jesus. So we, we talked about this last week. Jesus was supposed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and the people who people thought knew the Old Testament best rejected him. That takes some explaining. And Luke's going to explain that. In fact, by the time we get to the end of this gospel, there's going to be a dramatic kind of showdown in the temple that kind of flips everything we might think is going on on its head. Luke's going to say, make it clear, it's not a problem with Jesus. It's a problem with the religious leadership. God's not rejecting Jesus. He's rejecting the religious leadership. But in the introduction to his gospel, Luke sets you up for understanding that. And one way he does is by giving hints as to why people had a difficult time understanding what God was doing through Jesus. Specifically, he gives some examples. And these are best case examples. He gives you two examples of religious Jews who you would have thought were all set up to be excited about what God was doing through Jesus. But they were kind of missing or misunderstanding what God was doing at that particular moment. And it's kind of neat how Luke does this because in a sense, these two examples are parallel. They're at the beginning of his introduction in chapter one and at the end here in chapter two, and they both take place in the temple. There's an old man in the temple who can't speak and there's a little boy in the temple who is doing a lot of talking and both of these stories explain, they explain what is at the root of some of the objections and problems people were having with Jesus? And the first story, of course, was Zechariah, a priest. And the problem there, straight up, was unbelief. The last story, though, is someone you wouldn't expect. And I don't know the right way to say it exactly, but it's almost like Luke keeps surprising us. Because at the beginning, we were expecting Zechariah to be the one who's able to teach us about Jesus. He's religious leadership, but he didn't believe. And so Luke started with Mary instead. And now that we've gotten used to Mary getting it right, Luke turns the table again, tables again and shows us Mary not understanding. Which, like I said, is a, a little surprising, but also what makes her such a good example for this gospel, because Luke's not writing to out-and-out -out unbelievers here. He's writing to Theophilus, who whose name means lover of God. And so Theophilus needs to understand why the religious leadership rejected Jesus. And yet, of course, he also needs to understand what he has to remember as he considers what God's doing through Jesus if he's not going to be confused. And so Mary's a good example for that because she does have faith. She is obedient. And yet in this story, she is clearly troubled and confused by what's going on with Jesus. She's uncertain. And it's because she's missing something. There's something you have to understand about Jesus to understand what God's doing through Jesus. That, I think, is the point of this story. And you, you know the story. I think it's pretty familiar. But notice the way that Luke portrays Mary and Joseph. Verse 43, they've gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. They return home, but Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. And what does Luke say? His 
parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the caravan, they went on a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple. And so we're going to talk about that more later, but the thing is right now, that's a lot of cluelessness, actually. Even that last statement, after three days, because Jerusalem is not that big. It shouldn't have taken them three days to find Jesus, especially when you see he's like the center of attention in the temple. He's not hiding away in a corner here. And it gets worse. Mary and Joseph are clearly confused, and we could maybe chalk that up to bad parenting or something. They should have been paying more attention to where Jesus was, and that's why they were confused. But Luke makes clear that is so not the point. This is not a story about parenting, really. And we see that as he tells us the way Mary responded when she found Jesus, because she basically rebuked him. Verse 48, when they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And again, I'm wanting to get into all the details of that. But before we do, I want to step back and say, what is going on here? What is that? What is going on here is that you've got Jesus in the temple, and you've got someone who you would totally expect to understand Jesus. If anyone in the world would understand Jesus at this point, you would think it would be Mary. And yet she's confused, and she's upset, and in a sense she's uncertain about what is going on with Jesus, and she's asking, why would you do this? And that's an example, I think. This is a real story, obviously, but it's also an illustration. Here's Jesus, and here's the temple, and here are people being confused about Jesus and the temple, and that's like a theme in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, later on in Luke, we're going to see that what Jesus does in the temple makes a lot of people mad when he's an adult. It's Luke 19, verse 47, and that's a turning point. Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and everyone's going crazy. They're shouting out that he's the king. And yet right after that, he goes into the temple, and he does something in the temple that makes the religious leadership so angry. The next verse, Luke 19, 47, says they were trying to destroy him. Destroy. And then, of course, later on in the history of, church, of the church, actually, if you fast forward to 70 AD, the temple is destroyed, and you've got lots of questions popping up about Jesus. Looking back on the history of it, that kind of looks like the final proof Jesus wasn't the Messiah. What's the answer? If Jesus is the one the Old Testament promised, why was he rejected by the religious leadership, and why did some people you think would know better, who had faith, have such questions and uncertainties about what God was doing through Jesus? Even us. You know, if we're not going to get confused, what do we need to understand? This story with Mary, I think, is an example that gives us a glimpse of the answer to that. And first of all, we can see what's not the answer. Sometimes to get the right answer, you have to know what's not the answer first. And the answer is not something is wrong with Jesus. Write that down, write that down, write that down, remember that. The answer is not something is wrong with Jesus. And Luke makes that clear in a couple of different ways. First, starting with the way he frames the story. So if you look at the way Luke writes this story, there's an introduction to the story and a conclusion that say almost exactly the same thing. And that's like a frame 
for the picture. Going into the story, be thinking this. Coming out of the story, be thinking this. What exactly are we supposed to be thinking? Verse 39 and 40. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And so at the very least, what's that? That's a positive statement about Jesus. That, that means going into the story and coming out of the story, Luke's, he wants us thinking Jesus is wise and, and God's pleased with him and the grace of God is upon him. And you know what? It was obvious. I mean, people could easily see that even when he was a child. So the problem is not with Jesus. You can see that in the way Luke frames the story. Then second, there's the theme of the story, in a sense. If you look at verse 40 as an introduction and verse 52 as a conclusion, there's one word that repeats, and that's the word wisdom. I guess the whole phrase even, increasing in wisdom. So this story is the only inspired story from Jesus' childhood that we get anywhere. That makes it really significant. And it's an example of the fact that Jesus was exceptionally wise and that the grace of God was upon him. So if you think of that verse as an introduction, verse 40, and verse 52 as a conclusion, then you could say the story in the middle is an illustration of that. In other words, one of the primary purposes of this story is to show how wise Jesus was. That's why it's here. Looking at the story, it's like Mary and Joseph are groping around in the dark. They're just lost. But Jesus is wise. He knows the scriptures. He understands. So the problem is not with Jesus. You can trust Jesus. He's wise. He's so wise. And if you look at the story itself, it's really such a striking example of that, of the wisdom of Jesus. That's the, the third proof. The problem is not with Jesus. The way Luke frames the story, the theme of the story, and the story. Let me quickly walk you through it. Luke tells us Mary and Joseph had been living in Nazareth. And you get that at the end of verse 39. And it seems like they had been living there for some time, but Luke doesn't tell us exactly how long, actually. He just kind of fast forwards instead. It's Matthew who adds a lot of details that Luke doesn't about them going back to Bethlehem for a while when Jesus was a baby and then fleeing to Egypt as refugees because King Herod wanted to kill them. But even though they lived in Bethlehem in Egypt for a little while, at some point after Herod died, that particular Herod, they came back and settled in Nazareth. And that's all Luke tells us. They had been living in Nazareth, which was not an important place, really. It's just this little village in Galilee. But every year they went up to Jerusalem. Verse 41. Now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And that was a pretty long walk. It was about 80 miles. So that's commitment. In spite of how far it was, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Passover, which took place sometime around March or April. And you know, actually, women didn't have to go, but a lot of women did because Passover was something that was really important to all the Jews. This was something they had been literally celebrating for thousands of years. It's like the uh, longest celebrated holiday in the world, and they had been celebrating it in a big way. It was pretty much the main Jewish festival for the entire year, which meant uh, that there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. Apparently, the population basically doubled that week. 
And people from all over the world would go to Jerusalem on Passover. And even Roman soldiers would have to come down as well to make sure with all the people there, things uh, stayed under control, especially since they were celebrating at Passover how God delivered them from a foreign power. And most uh, Jewish people, they would come up to Jerusalem in caravans, large groups of people. And we can see that's how Mary and Joseph made the trip, because in verse 44, Luke talks about them searching for Jesus among their friends and relatives. So they didn't just come down or up by themselves. They came down with a lot of other people. And they came down like that because, obviously, the roads were were dangerous. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan and highway robbers and all that. But since they were traveling in these larger groups, they were much safer, and it was, I'm sure, a lot more fun as well. It was kind of, kind of ended up being like a party uh, the whole way down. They would have the, the children in front, because if they had the parents in front, they would have been going too fast and lost the children. So they would travel with the children in front, usually, and the women in the middle and the men in the back. All of them uh, from the same town, and they would walk maybe 20 or 30 miles a day, and then they would set up camp singing. I'm sure there was a lot of singing, and especially as they came closer and closer to Jerusalem because the anticipation would have been building, and there were even certain psalms they would chant called the Psalms of Ascents or the Pilgrim Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that they would have been singing as they made their way up, probably arriving in Jerusalem about a week before the Passover started, actually because they wanted to make sure that everyone was in a state of purification for the Passover itself, because you couldn't even enter the temple if you weren't in that state, and you definitely wanted to enter the temple if you went to Jerusalem, which is why most people would get there early so they could make sure they went through all the necessary rituals so that they could be clean or pure for Passover, which was itself a one-day feast, Passover, followed by another feast that took a whole other seven days, so like seven days longer, and that's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a different feast, but it happened at the same time, and so we sometimes talk about them together. And it uh, wasn't technically required, actually, that the family would stay in Jerusalem that entire time. Uh, and there were, there were some people who would leave the day after Passover, seeing they had already been in Jerusalem for a week already at that point. But when we look at the way Luke tells this story in verse 43, Mary and Joseph and their family must have stayed the whole time because he says, and when the feast was ended, or literally when they had fulfilled the days, or as the New American Standard puts it, after spending the full number of days, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So that's like the setting for the story. And this phrase, stayed behind, is the turning point. This is where we, we start getting to it. It's an important phrase because sometimes when people tell this story, it sort of sounds like Jesus got lost. But you look at this, and that's not really the way this reads at all. It sounds intentional. The boy Jesus stayed behind. And yet somehow Joseph and Mary didn't know it, end of verse 43. But his parents were unaware of it. And there's an emphasis in the text on the parents' unawareness. The problem's not with Jesus and the temple, the problem is with the parents not understanding, being unaware of it. Luke says, because they were supposing him to be in the group, and so they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and they can't find him. There's a lot of people, and they're spread out, and sometimes there would be even whole different groups of men and women and children that were traveling separately most of the day and got together at the end. We do that even now here, men over 
there and women over here. And that's probably what happened. Mary's in the back with the women, and she thinks uh, Jesus is with Joseph, and Joseph is up front and thinks Jesus is with Mary. And when they finally get back together at the end of the day and find out he's not with either of them, they start asking around, and he's not anywhere. And then they travel a day back to Jerusalem, and they still can't find him. And then Luke tells us, verse 46, after three days, they finally found him in the temple. And we imagine, of course, that they must be so concerned. And we might think, if we didn't know the story, that Jesus might be a little bothered as well. If you were 12 and in a place that wasn't your home, that could seem a little scary. And yet, if you look at the text, Jesus doesn't seem concerned at all. After three days being by himself, he's just sitting there in the midst of the teachers. Which, again, is actually one of those things that Luke had to know some data to speak about because the temple wasn't always a place where you would have teachers sitting around teaching. That would be the synagogue. But there were specific times every year, like at Passover, when there were so many teachers in town that the temple became, as one man explains, like a a theological academy. And so the important thing to understand here is that these were the teachers who basically went to Harvard and Cambridge. (laughs) I mean, these are not just any teachers in the temple. These are like the best and the brightest minds in Judaism of that day. And yet here's Jesus, this 12-year-old boy from Nazareth, verse 46, and what's he doing? Luke says he's sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. Which sounds, I know, at first like he's wanting to learn from them, which is totally possible. But I wonder instead if this isn't more Jesus kind of using the Socratic method, teaching them by asking questions, because that's what he does all the time later, right? How often does Jesus answer someone with a question? And it kind of seems like that's what's happening here because in verse 47, Luke says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His answers, not their answers. They were amazed at his answers. And amazed doesn't maybe really cut it. It's, it's astonished. This was like mind-blowing. And remember, again, this is a 12-year-old boy. So... And this is real. So here is this 12-year-old boy, and he's at the most important place in Jerusalem, the temple. And he's with the greatest minds in Judaism. And he's all by himself. And somehow, as he goes toe-to-toe with them, talking about the Bible, it's like he comes out on top every single time, right? Right? And so we're looking at Mary and Joseph, and they're all flustered. They're so confused. They don't know where Jesus is. What's he doing? And and, and they're kind of an example, an illustration of believing people who are confused by Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus. And Luke, as he tells this story at the beginning of the gospel, he's like, you know what the problem is, why people get confused. The problem is not Jesus. You are looking in the wrong place. If you're looking at Jesus, I mean, even at 12, he understood the Bible at another level. And he's not rebellious either. And even after this story, verse 51, when the whole story's over, you can see how Luke tries to take away any possible wrong conclusion, stressing Jesus is not just a disobedient child here, because we might think that, right? But no, verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. Continued, And I think Luke tells us, Mary here is back on track now. He says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
So then again, what's the problem? It can't be Jesus. The way this story is framed, the theme of this story, the story is all Luke saying it's not Jesus. So what is the problem? What is the problem? The problem is that they failed to appreciate the identity of Jesus. And this is such a good insight, I think, because sometimes the problem with doubt and uncertainty is just unbelief. Look at Zechariah. The revelation is there, you don't believe. And that's actually going to be the problem with the religious leaders. That's part of why Jesus gives them the condemnation that he gives them about the unpardonable sin. They know, but they don't want to submit. They, they have the revelation. They know what the revelation is saying, but they just won't believe. But sometimes, though, you have uh, believers, people who are believers, but they're just thrown and they're confused and uncertain when they shouldn't be. And it's because, at least at that point, they're not fully appreciating the identity of Jesus. And that is going to become a theme in this gospel, really. It's probably most graphically illustrated at the end, Luke 24, with those disciples who are so sad because they think the crucifixion means Jesus lost, is, is he, that he lost. You remember, it's three days. It's after three days, and they're anxiously uh, going about. And they're walking with Jesus after he rose from the dead, and they're sad, and they're confused because they thought he was supposed to be the one to redeem Israel. That's what they say. And even though Jesus is literally right there with them, they're still so sad, and it's because they can't see him. They see him, but they don't see him for who he is. The answer to uncertainty is seeing Jesus for who he is. That's what it says at the end of the gospel, and I think that's what Luke is getting us ready for here at the beginning. And look at the way he goes about it, verse 48. He's getting us ready, verse 48. When they saw him, they were astonished. That's Jesus' parents. And so everybody's amazed at Jesus for different reasons. The teachers are amazed because of his understanding, and his parents are astonished, but for a completely different reason. Luke tells us what they're amazed about. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. So she's astonished at the way Jesus treated her. And now we're, we're getting to the part of the story that's the point. This is the key part. And yet it's also the part of the story that's a little confusing. And it's confusing because most of us can appreciate what Mary's feeling, I think. Because Jesus intentionally stayed behind this was an intentional choice. And it must have been dawning on Mary that it was because while they were so worked up there, Joseph and Mary, you know, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He obviously wasn't. He was totally calm at perfect peace there in the middle of those teachers. And so, of course, it kind of makes sense to us that Mary would have been a little bit upset because that's how we would feel. And yet, and yet we know, we know for sure that Jesus was perfect and wise and completely submissive to his parents. So there's something more going on here. And I think what is going on here is that she had forgotten, or at least wasn't fully appreciating who Jesus was. Jesus and Jerusalem really go together. Even Anna had said that. Anna slash Hannah. And, and Jesus and the temple go together in, in a big way. And Jesus isn't just any child, you know. He chose to come into this world. He has a purpose, and it's all bound up with Jerusalem and the temple. And actually, the first two chapters of Luke 
set us up for thinking of Jesus in Samuel-like terms. And where did Samuel stay? And yet it seems like Mary and Joseph have kind of forgotten all that. And you can see that in her statement, especially when you contrast it with Jesus' response. When they saw him, verse 48, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And it's interesting, isn't it, that they had been looking for him for how many days, does Luke say? Three days at the beginning of the gospel, anxiously which is sort of similar to how people at the end of the gospel acted, right? His followers and how they had been feeling for three days. And so it wouldn't be surprising if there was some sort of insight here that helps us understand what's going on. And I I think there is. Mary says, your father and I, your father. And of course, from a certain angle, there's no problem calling Joseph Mary's father, uh, or Joseph Jesus's father, Uh, Because he was his adopted father. Jesus was adopted. You could say Joseph was his adopted father. But it's like Mary's kind of forgotten that's all Joseph was. Or, Or to say it a different way, that there was something more to Jesus. And you see that in Jesus's response. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? And there's a little bit of a rebuke there. Why were you looking for me? You should have known. And that's something that's going to come up all throughout this gospel, so get used to it. Almost every time there is uncertainty about Jesus and what he's doing with the disciples, Jesus is going to point out they should have known. Even sometimes we're reading the gospel, and Jesus says what's going to happen so clearly, and the disciples don't get it, and we're like, what's wrong with you? He's literally saying he's going to be crucified. And the next statement is the disciples did not understand what he was saying. Because it's like there's a veil over their eyes. And it's not just Jesus saying it to them either. Later on, Luke's going to say, it's there in Scripture. You should have known. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Which is a, a really big statement. It's not just a rebuke to Mary. It tells us something about Jesus. And what do we learn about Jesus here that is so significant? First of all, this might be a little hint that he's pro-temple. In our English text, that seems kind of obvious. He says, this is my father's house. But in the Greek, it's a little less so, because uh, maybe in your Bible, you see that house is in italics. And that's because the word's not there. Uh, You know how even in English, we can say things and leave out words, and everybody knows what we're talking about. So like we might say, you want to go with. And what's the word that's missing? me, but you knew what I was meaning, and that's what's happening here. I I think given the context, temple is the most obvious word that would have been in Jesus's mind, and that's going to be significant because later he's going to talk about the temple being destroyed, and one of the tactics that is going to be used against Jesus as they make their attacks on him is that he talked about the temple in negative ways, like about it being torn down. You remember in Matthew at his trial, this man said he was going to tear down the temple, and people were like, oh, no. And yet this is clearly Jesus' pro-temple. He loved the temple. This was his father's house. And then, of course, maybe more importantly, you see the priority that the heavenly father takes in Jesus' life, and that is a big point. What his heavenly father 
once is what is most important to Jesus. I had to be in my father's house. There's a, a bunch of must statements, I must, in the Gospel of Luke that are really significant for understanding Jesus and his mission, and this is one of them. I must be in my father's house. And it's almost like this story explains the last one. If you remember when Simeon told Mary that a sword was going to pierce her soul, she's feeling a little of that already here. She's anxious, and the word anxious is too mild, really. It means she's in great distress. And she's in great distress because of Jesus, and it's going to get worse for her in 30 years or so. And this is why. It's because Jesus' heavenly Father's will took priority in his life over everything else. Which, again, is going to be something that comes up later because obviously people had a will for Jesus. In other words, they had something they wanted from Jesus. And many of his followers had a will for Jesus. And you know what? He disappointed them a lot because his heavenly Father's will took priority over everything else. The Gospel of John over and over. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Whatever the Father does. These the Son does in like manner. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I've not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so absolutely key to understanding Jesus from the beginning is understanding Jesus was not here just to fulfill what people expected of him. Of course, he served people, but first he served God. So if you see Jesus doing something you don't expect, it's because he's submitting himself to what his father wanted. His heavenly father's will took priority over everything else. I must be in my father's house. And on top of all that, I think we're seeing that Jesus' relationship to the temple is unique. Even if this is not, I had to be in my father's house, meaning temple, but instead I had to be about my father's business, which is how some translations translate it. Where is his father's business taking place? In the temple. There is something important about the temple and Jesus. And as we read the Gospel of Luke, that's going to become very important because you know where a lot of the conflict with Jesus started heating up at the temple. We said earlier, Jesus always had religious leaders who were upset with him, but it started getting really serious after Jesus goes into the temple. You remember how he goes into Jerusalem, and everyone's excited, then he goes into the temple, and immediately after that, he gets angry, and he cleanses out the temple. He literally takes over the temple for several days. It was being used for greedy purposes, and so for the next several days, he holds court in the temple. He makes it what it's supposed to be. And so he's not sitting down listening to teachers anymore at that point in Luke. He's just teaching. And actually, interestingly, Luke 19, Luke 20, Luke 21, the teachers are coming to him and asking him questions, the religious leaders. And yet this is really the point where they had had enough, and so their questions aren't sincere, and they all revolve around Jesus' authority, basically asking him, how dare you take over the temple? And finally, they get so angry that they just completely ignore everything they would have said they stood for and murdered Jesus totally illegally. We'll see that later. It's crazy. You read the story. You can't believe that religious leaders would do what they did. But they're just so angry. And a lot of the reason is having to do with this, his relationship with the temple. The fact that he assumed he had authority over it. 
This is his father's house. Jesus can do what he wants to do there. And the reason he had authority over the temple is because of who he was. And that's kind of the point of this whole story right at the beginning. It's like Luke's pointing out. If you are going to understand Jesus, you have to understand that he is the son of God. God is his father in a unique way. That's the conclusion to Luke's introduction of Jesus. He's truly a human. He has a true human nature. Verse 40, I don't know if you were shocked by that verse when you read it, but if you're reading your Bible properly, verse 40 is like, what? Because it says he grows. God doesn't grow in anything, and yet Jesus grows. He increases in wisdom. He, in he increases in wisdom. But if you look down at verses 48 and 49 again, there's something more going on here because the key contrast in this story is Mary saying, behold, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus saying back, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Your father, Mary says, my father, Jesus says. So it's like Mary saying, son, why are you failing in your responsibility to your father? And Jesus is saying, I'm not. You need to remember who really is my father. God is my father. It's like Mary saying, son, you're supposed to be with your father. And Jesus is saying, Mary, I am with my father and I have unique responsibility to him. Which is huge, that statement. Because it's the first time anywhere anyone in the Bible claimed to have God as his own personal father. There's no prophet in the history of Israel who ever said that. Even Moses and David, in terms of their own personal, personal individual relationship with God. They didn't say that. And yet here is Jesus at the age of 12, as he's studied scripture, he's increased in wisdom, understanding the scripture, he's clearly come to understand his own unique relationship with God. But obviously Mary and Joseph didn't. Luke tells us in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And that's like cut and paste later on in this gospel, copy and paste. Because that's exactly what Luke's going to say about the disciples later, as Jesus tells them about the cross. And I think it's like a neon warning sign to all of us. It's kind of like, whoa, 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 slow down and look at what Jesus says here one more time. Because here Mary is, and she's been around Jesus all these years, and she was a lady who knew God's word, and she had been visited by an angel, and she had been told significant things about Jesus, and she had been a virgin who gave birth. So she obviously knew something supernatural was going on. She had the shepherds explaining. She had Simeon and Anna who made those prophecies. And so she knew a lot, but even with all she knew, they weren't quite catching the full significance of Jesus. And so here he tries to help them. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? In other words, remember, I'm not first Joseph's son. I am the son of God. And that statement is key to seeing Jesus for who he really is. So what does he mean exactly? There are some things that he doesn't mean. So some people might think because Jesus was born of a virgin, that's why he's talking about God as his father. But biblically speaking, Jesus being the son of God doesn't rest on the virgin birth. The virgin birth is an evidence or illustration of his sonship, not the cause. The other way around, really. As someone put it, before Mary ever was, the Son of God is. Jesus does not become the Son of God, but the Son of God becomes Jesus. In other words, we know the Bible teaches 
God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so at a point in time, it's the second member of the Trinity, the Son, who became man. God the Father didn't become man. God the Holy Spirit didn't become man. God the Son became man. Though he always existed as the Son of God, he has a full divine nature. He didn't always exist as the God-man. In the incarnation, he added human nature, a true body and soul. So we look at Jesus. He's not just God in a body. He has a human nature. Even Luke pointed that out. He grows in wisdom and knowledge. That's something only a human can do. And yet, while he's fully God and fully man, he's not two separate people. Once he takes on human nature, he's not like, there's the God Jesus, there's the man Jesus. Man Jesus is doing that, God Jesus is doing that. No. And yet at the same time, it's not like he's some new mixture either. Actually, each one of those that I just listed is major heresies throughout the church history. Instead, he is this awesome mystery, fully God, fully man, two natures, but truly one person. And we see here Jesus knew it. He knew who he was. It's deep for us, but as someone has explained, as the incarnate son, Jesus knew that God was his father even was when he was a boy. He had complete confidence that he was the son of God. Already at this young age, he was speaking to God and about God the way he would always speak to him when he was a man, calling him father. And this is really important in the gospel of Luke. It's everywhere. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. Luke 1.32, in announcing Jesus' birth, the angels say, he will be called the Son of the Most High. At Jesus' baptism, Luke 3.22, a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. When Jesus is tempted in Luke 4.3, the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. At his transfiguration, when Jesus is up on that mountain and his glory is revealed, Luke 9.35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. In other words, God says Jesus is the son of God. An angel says Jesus is the son of God. The devil says Jesus is the son of God. Demons say Jesus is the son of God. If you are going to understand who Jesus is, you have to understand what he means when he calls God his father and, when he, and what he means when he calls the temple his father's house. This is one of the, if not the most important claim that Jesus makes about himself. To, to say you're a savior is one thing. To say you're the king is big. But to say that you are the son of God is even above all that. In fact, it was really this claim that he was the son of God that led to his execution. Are you the son of God then? Remember? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So this was clearly a shocking kind of statement, and it could take us a few sermons to really understand everything the Bible means. I was thinking of preaching three sermons on this passage, but we're just doing it in one. But it could take us three sermons or more to understand what it means to call Jesus the Son of God, because sometimes it means actually that he's like Adam. Other times it means that he's like Israel. Other times it means that he's like David. But we can fast forward past those, I think, here, because it, 
also means Jesus is the divine son of God. And again, that doesn't mean God had a wife and they had a baby. Instead, it's a a way of speaking to help us understand the relationships in the Trinity. D.A. Carson has written a whole book on Jesus as the son of God, and and that would be worth getting if if you want to know more. And he warns that sometimes we get a little off track because when we hear son, we almost always think DNA. But in Jesus' day, there was something more going on when you talked about someone as the son of something. Often, uh, to describe someone as the son of something or someone else was a way of saying they share the same qualities. So you might say uh, Barnabas was the son of encouragement, not because his father's name was literally encouragement, but because that's what Barnabas was like. And obviously, that's true with Jesus. To call him the son of God is saying he has all the qualities of the father, so much so, Jesus says he and the father are one. They are equal in essence. Jesus shares the very nature of God. Through Jesus, it is possible to get a picture of who God is and what God is like. And while I know that can be a little confusing, that's partly because there's just never been anyone like Jesus. Jesus is a man, fully man. He grew and became strong. He increased in wisdom. And at the same time, he wasn't just any other man. He was and is fully God, which meant that when Jesus was at the temple, he was right where he was supposed to be. He wasn't sinning against his earthly parents. As, As his parents, Mary and Joseph had the right to expect him to be where he was supposed to be. But in this case, they had the wrong assumption about where that was, in part because even though they had been around Jesus for a while and had received revelation about Jesus and even demonstrated a measure of faith in Jesus, at that point, they hadn't grasped the full significance of who Jesus is. And the question is, have you? And really, maybe just take it a step past that, are you? Because the most important thing in your life is that you know Jesus for who he really is and that you keep knowing and growing in your appreciation for who Jesus is. And this is absolutely urgent for us. I think one of the most, it's hard to get it across how urgent it is. One of the most important things I can say as a pastor every week is, is this, look, look, look. And it's so urgent I say that because it's so hard for us to hear it. We don't think of that as very important. Look, I'm supposed to look. That is the most urgent thing you can do as a human being. Look at Jesus because it's only in keeping your eyes on Jesus that things can make sense in this world. I mean, obviously, right now, we're living in this uncertain time. Things are difficult, and people are uncertain. And you know what's so sad? I think sometimes all that uncertainty that's around us, it it starts feeling pretty normal. We get used to it. And so we've got objections, and we've got confusions that come into our minds about God and about Jesus and about what God's doing all the time. And it's easy to live there, to stay there in this constant state of uncertainty, and to sometimes even start thinking the problem must be with Jesus. 
And, you know, we're not the first to wonder. Reading Luke, we're seeing from the beginning there have been people who encountered God, received revelation from God, and flat out didn't believe. And there have been other people who were confused because Jesus didn't do things the way they thought he should do them. So what's the answer? Luke says, understand the problem's not with Jesus. The problem is that even with all this revelation, with all the privileges we experience, we sometimes fail to keep our eyes on Jesus and see him for who he really is. It's so scary, but we get used to Jesus. We start thinking of him as as smaller than he really is. And so as we've looked at this introduction to Luke and what it says about the person of Jesus, I've been wanting to encourage you to look again, look again, and then look again, and pray that God would really help you grasp and enjoy the full significance of who Jesus is and what he's doing through Jesus. Because maybe you're like Zechariah. The revelation is there, but you're just not believing. What do you do? Repent. Repent. Your lack of belief is sin, and you will be judged for it. Ask God to give you faith. But on the other hand, maybe you're like Mary. You believe You've experienced these wonderful encounters with God and his word, but you need God to help you believe. And so what do you do? You go to Jesus and you ask Jesus to show himself to you in his word. Because I keep saying week after week, he's beautiful. Think of something that's truly excellent. Jesus is better. He has every excellency. This is one reason he has so many names throughout scripture because he's so great. You have to find all these different ways to describe him. He's like a a, a lion. He's like a lamb. He's a rock. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the one who shows us what it means to be human. He's the one who shows us God. He was so humble that men overlooked him. He's the one who reveals to us the glory of God. He's all powerful. He's overflowing with compassion. Everything you could ever want in a savior that's true and right and appropriate to want, he is. And if you're not seeing that, you need to go to Jesus and you need to ask Jesus to show his beauty to you. And where does he do that? Where does he do that? I said earlier, it's, it's funny, this story of Mary not seeing Jesus, even though he was right there at the beginning of Luke's Luke's gospel, is, a, is basically parallel to the story at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 24, where you have those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walking there with them, he, they're so discouraged, confused like Mary, and they're discouraged because Jesus had been crucified. They thought he was the one. They say they hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, which is what the old woman Anna prophesied back in chapter 2. And now they say he's been crucified, and it's the third day since all this happened. They make a big deal out of that. And Jesus says to them what? Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary? That's the same word here. It must. I must be in my father's house. Same. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning 
with Moses and all the scriptures, prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So those disciples, they were in the same place of, as Mary, so close to Jesus, but not seeing Jesus. And so Jesus took them to scripture. And, and, and yet they still didn't quite see him the way that they wanted to. And so they asked him to stay with them. And Luke says, it came about when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining scripture to us? That is what you want and that is what you need. And if you're not a believer, you need that miracle to take place in your life. And you need to ask God for it. And you need to not let up studying the scriptures and asking God in his mercy to give that beautiful sight of Jesus to you. And if you are a believer, can I encourage you? Keep going. Keep praying. Keep studying every day. This isn't a once and done kind of thing. This isn't like, oh, 15 years ago. Yeah, I remember. I'm living on 15 years ago. I really, had a, I really glimpsed and saw a beautiful view of Jesus. Now, this is something we need absolutely every day. God, show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. Help me enjoy what you're doing through Jesus. Help me have a bigger appreciation for who Jesus is. It's a relationship, and relationships take work. But they require you to spend time. This relationship requires you to spend time with God in his word looking at Jesus. It doesn't sound complicated, and in many ways it's really not that complicated. I was listening to a message this week on Jesus fully God, Jesus fully man, and at the beginning you know what I thought as I was listening to that message? I thought, man, I've heard this maybe a billion times before. But I said to myself, Josh, this is beautiful. Keep looking. Keep looking. Keep listening. And by the end, God in his grace had me coming out saying, ah, Jesus, you are awesome. And it wasn't because of anything amazing about the way that man preached that message. It's actually because Jesus is amazing. And seeing Jesus for who he is, is absolutely key to living out the Christian life. And it's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus is absolutely 100% worth it. Let's pray. Father, help us not spend all these years in church and be so close to Revelation and miss the main point. Um, help us to see Jesus over and over and over again in his word and be transformed by the sight. We pray in your name, amen.